Hello and welcome to the Shiloh podcast. This is the podcast that aims to shine a light on the stories and practices of religion that contribute to rape culture. And more positively, we're here to challenge them. Today I'm with... Johanna Stiebert. I'm Professor of Hebrew Bible at the University of Leeds and together with Caroline Blythe and Katie Edwards, I co-direct the Shiloh Project. And Katie Edwards describes you as a whirlwind. So tell me, what is it that you brought to the project? <laughs> oh, well, I think uh, the project has energized me. It's brought uh, relevance and dynamism and meaning to the work I do and the activism I do. And what's the difference in terms of your former academic work and this work? I mean, is there a difference in terms of the people that you're reaching the tenor of how academic it is or how practical it is? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. It's not uh, come only with the Shiloh Project. I think activism and scholarship have been coming together for me over a period of time and absolutely instrumental was my time in Botswana in the early years of this millennium. I spent three years at the University of Botswana which coincided with the height of the HIV and AIDS pandemic and the huge numbers of deaths there. And I worked together with Musa Dube. We were in the same department and she persuaded me that activism and scholarship could not be separated at a time like that when it was crucial to work towards alleviating the suffering, the stigma, the pain, in whichever ways we had available. And I've never looked back from that. Now, one of the, the things you've just done is to write the first in a series of short books published by Routledge on rape culture, religion and the Bible. And it's called Rape Miss the Bible and Me Too. Uh, just tell me what you're doing in that book. I'm trying to open a conversation that I hope will be continued in subsequent volumes in the series. And so because the title of the series is Rape Culture, Religion and the Bible, I'm trying to provide some overview of those three components. So I talk about gender-based and sexual violence in the Bible. So looking at the Hebrew Bible, which is familiar territory for me, but also dipping into the New Testament because the two are so often put together, read together, used together. Then I try to look a little bit at the role of the Bible in the contemporary world, and then at the big splash made by Me Too, especially in conversations around religion and religious life. And I try and contextualize um, the Me Too movement in bigger conversations about what is often called feminist digital activism and how it has altered the way we look at sexual harassment, including how we look at the Bible. So yes, it's very much a volume that's hoping to start a conversation and find respondents who can then follow the various trails I wasn't able to follow in a book as small as that. Now, you've been working on this area for a long time, um, long before the Me Too movement started. But there was already a climate of discussion around sort of Me Too issues, wasn't there? Both in 
secular discourse and in regard to biblical studies? Absolutely, and I think I can talk with more authority on the biblical studies part of that question. 1984, the publication of Phyllis Tribble's Texts of Terror was the first monograph-length study on sexual violence against women in the Bible. And the conversation has continued since then, but it's really sharpened in this millennium in particular. There have been more and more books about both violence in the Bible and in how these passages are interpreted, Uh, rape culture in popular culture and rape culture in biblical texts. Those were both emerging conversations by the time Me Too arrived. And what were the key um, draws and influences which pulled you towards this work? The work on Me Too? The work on rape culture in the Bible. The work on rape culture and the Bible, I think it's because, maybe it's about, I've worked on texts of gender-based and sexual violence for a long time, including in my PhD, which looked at shame in prophetic texts, but I think I'm getting angrier with time, and um, there is finally more attention paid to it. Me Too was just the climax of a movement that's been brewing for a long time. You, you begin by talking about the, some of the, the root words, the, the Hebrew words that are used, and it's often said there's no such noun or verb for rape. It's often translated that way, and you mm-hmm. support the fact that it's translated that way, but there is a, an academic opinion which says, no, we shouldn't use mm-hmm. that particular word. Do you think there's any validity in that position? Ooh, if we're just going to go about semantics, does this Hebrew word, uh, does our word rape exactly capture that Hebrew word? Um, I guess you can make a case, absolutely. I think for us in, in our context here, rape is very much about consent, and that isn't uh, so well developed. It's, it's not of interest in what we read about the laws in the Hebrew Bible, for example, in texts that appear to describe what for me is clearly rape. Uh, the consent of the woman is not an issue. I would very much caution against not using the word rape because I think using words that I feel might capture uh, the intention of the biblical vocabulary better, like to humiliate or to devalue, serve to our ears now to downplay what is very often very clearly sexual violence, and I see no evidence for interpreting it as any less psychically damaging as rapists nowadays. So I feel not using the word rape downplays that, and I am very happy to use the word rape in very many of the texts I discuss in the book. Do you think there's an agenda behind a reluctance to use that word? Sometimes there is. I think sometimes it's uh, very good, very responsible scholars who have a great interest in the precise meanings of words, so I wouldn't want to tie everybody with that brush. But I think quite often uh, there is an agenda of that kind. Uh, I don't have a stake in the biblical text the way some writers do. Uh, I don't need the Bible to guide me. For me, it is an old, fascinating text, but I'm not theologically guided by it. Um, And I think some authors, whether they're entirely conscious of it or not, they feel they have to make the text right. And I think sometimes that's where that agenda is, to use the word you just used, where that stems from is a a kind of anxiety about the text and wanting to make it less awful. Now, I'm quite familiar with some of the stories Mm -hmm. around um, sexual violence against women in the Bible. What really struck me about 
this book was how much other stuff there is, mm. which people might not be quite so aware of. For instance, the prophets and the law. If we start with the prophets, tell me about how the theme of sexual violence and humiliation mm. runs through some of the prophetic texts. Well, the prophets, generalizing a bit here, uh, are very much about punishment. They, there is the, the prophets cry out about all the wrong that's being done and the need for punishment and purging before restoration can take place. And the way that punishment is depicted is very often in terms of uh, exposure and humiliation. And that is very frequently sexualized by casting Israel or Jerusalem in the role of a woman and her punishment in the form of pulling her skirts over her head, stripping her, exposing her, sometimes stoning her, sometimes beating her. Uh, the early chapters in Hosea uh, use that metaphor. Ezekiel chapters 16 and 23 are the most extended forms of that, uh, of that metaphor. And they are disturbing because they, the way metaphors work is that they allude to what might be called stereotypes or um, what what we might call common knowledge or something like that. And it's said that this is cast as something acceptable before things can get better. You've got to be dreadfully punished. And uh, very often God is the executor of that punishment, which seems to divinely condone what is happening there. And that's what makes these passages very, very disturbing. And other commentators, notably Renita Weems, a womanist writer and scholar from the United States, have picked up on this on this metaphor and its brutality. We've no idea, have we, about how those prophetic sayings as they were and then texts when written down, how those would have been received. But what we know is that they, they start to form a, a pattern. Other prophets mm. pick up on the same mm. ideas, don't they? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I mean, it's, it's very often suggested that they were oral traditions set down in writing, added to who came up with this metaphor, was it Hosea, who's often by scholars designated one of the earliest uh, prophetic writers? Um, we don't know, but it seems to have been a very, very persistent image because we do find it all over the place, uh, many, many of the prophets. So it must have been a very resonant image, one that was quickly recognized, one that was particularly frightening, vivid, visceral. And it absolutely depends on the maleness of God, doesn't it? Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, his, his anger is, is righteous because his wife, with whom he was in contract, the people of Israel, has been spreading her legs under every tree. Again, the language is very, very visceral here. It's sometimes very easily forgotten that the people who are being rebuked are men as well as women because the image is almost you know, the most vivid form of it and the most extensive forms of which depict the punished figure as feminized. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder how women and men would have heard it differently. Absolutely, yes. But just occasionally, what's um, also very disturbing is that the text in the prophet Ezekiel say, actually point to real women take note. You know, it, it actually does refer to, to, to women take note, see what's happening here. This is what happens when you are adulterous. Uh, which is the metaphor for being idolatrous. But it's very, very easy to forget that it's supposed to be not just about punishing women. The, the other area, which non-scholarly people perhaps read even less than the prophets, mm. um, is the law. Mm. Just tell me about the 
resonances that you find in there for how our law is now, how our judges speak now? Yeah, I find it fascinating because it tells us so much about social situations. You don't have laws until unless the situations it addresses are there. So the laws are there because people were committing adultery and incest and so on. And the rape laws, and again, that conversation about whether to use the word rape appropriately or not, is a live discussion when it comes to the texts in Deuteronomy, for instance, as well. But what's so striking about them is that the preoccupation is not with the woman's consent. It is with her being damaged property. So what do you do when a woman who was betrothed to another man uh, is raped by a man to whom she's not betrothed? And you know, should she be punished or should she not? And uh, so those laws are very, very interesting in terms of providing insight into lived lives in, in the past. And I think it's very likely that civil law in Christian Great Britain, Europe, uh, used the Bible very extensively. I know that's the case of the incest laws, which I've studied in the past. And it seems to be the case with the rape laws as well. It's a very striking statistic that uh, rape in marriage was not criminalized until 1991 in this country because of the kinds of assumptions, I'm presuming, that are very evident in the biblical text, that a woman belongs to a, a man and that sexual rights to her are a given once she is married to this or that man. Can you just give me a, f a few examples of the kind of laws which play into rape culture, rape myth? There's the laws about uh, if a woman is raped by a man in a town or in a field, these are also to be found in Deuteronomy, and a distinction is made. If a woman is raped in a town where she could have cried out, then uh, she is to be killed alongside the rapist. And now we know nowadays from clinical studies that women who describe rape very often say that they don't cry out. They often don't report for a very long time. People very often describe freezing. And so there may be very, very good reasons why a woman wouldn't cry out. But the assumption is made that if she doesn't, it's not really rape. It's not proper rape. Seems is one we can read as indicative of a rape culture. And then the contrast we have is of the woman who's raped in the field and she is not to be killed where the rapist is because she may have cried out and nobody heard her. So there are these kind of rape culture assumptions that shine through those legal texts, sparse as they are. Which don't sound a million miles away from what we sometimes hear oh. judges saying in court in, in rape Isn't cases today. Isn't it depressing? Isn't it depressing that, you know, things have not got a whole lot better? I'm thinking of that very awful case called the Wolfpack rape, rape case in Spain, where a woman was gang raped by a group of men at the time of a, of a festival. And there was footage of her filmed by the rapists. And because she appeared to be passive, some judges deemed her not to be resisting and therefore for not to be rape. Whereas as another person in the defence spoke out, there's very good reason why a woman in that situation might, might not resist because she would have felt terrified in danger. And you're right, judges who still say if you don't dress in a particular way or if you don't drink too much, then these things won't happen. And if they do happen, it's, you know, you're partly to blame. So yes, sadly, these kind of victim-blaming, rape-culture suggestive things are still very very much present in our courts. What is the effect on you 
mm. of doing this work? The effect on me personally, ah, I feel very strongly that rape culture has to be resisted in very, very, very many different ways. And there are wonderful people who are on the front line who are dealing with perpetrators and rape victims, and that is not work I do. What I try and do is to confront the texts in the Bible, which are sometimes just read with this awe and reverence, uh, and sometimes bits that sort of seem a bit icky are passed over. And I feel very much that I want to confront them. The effect on me is sometimes it makes me very, very bleak. Uh, sometimes it's a way to channel some of the anger I feel at what I see happening in my own setting. It's Rape culture is very visible to me in all kinds of ways. Yes, it, it can get me down, but it can also sometimes make me feel more active. It, it, it helps me make a contribution in some way. Thank you, Johanna, and to all of those of you who are listening. In the next episode of the Shiloh podcast, I'll be talking to Mapula Kebanilwe from the University of Botswana about the work she's doing in promoting readings of the Bible which challenge gender-based violence. And you know Mapula well, Johanna. I do. It's a bit embarrassing to say so. She's now a senior lecturer, but when we met, she was my student. She was doing a master's at the University of Botswana, and you're in for a real treat. Mapula is one of those people that uh, brings fun to the subject. She's a wonderful collaborator and she is a womanist, activist and scholar of the Hebrew Bible. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Shiloh podcast, all one word, dot captivate, dot FM. Please leave reviews and let us know what you'd like to hear discussed in future episodes. That's all from us from now. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.